0: Welcome to Life As It Is. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Each month, my co-host Sharon Salzberg and I chat with Buddhist practitioners about their work, practice, and everyday life. It can be so easy to become demoralized or even apocalyptic about the state of our planet, but entrepreneur and activist Paul Hawken believes we have less reason to despair than we think. In fact, he says, if we act together, we can end the climate crisis in decades to come. In his new book, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation, Hawken offers a model of climate activism that puts life at the center of every act and every decision. After all, says Hawken if we want to save the world, we have to create a world worth saving. In today's episode of Life as It Is, Sharon Salzberg and I sit down with Hawken to discuss the Buddhist teachings that underpin his activism, the role of reverence in solving the climate crisis, and how he stays motivated in the face of burnout. So I'm here with my friend and co-host, Sharon Salzberg, and we're going to be speaking with Paul Hawken, an environmentalist, entrepreneur, author, and activist. Hello, Paul. Hi, Sharon. Hi. Hi, Hi Sharon. Hi, James. It's good to be with you both. So Paul, we're here today to talk about your new book, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. So why don't we start by having you explain to us what you mean by regeneration. Regeneration is putting
1: life at the center of every act and decision. Simple, clean, clear, pure. But interestingly, I mean, it is actually what life does. Mm -hmm. I wanted a word that actually is who we are, as opposed to a conceptual word that is hanging out there like somehow you have to do it or not do it. It's sustainability is such a word, which is good. Yes, I get it. What does it mean? Whereas regeneration is what all 30 trillion cells in our body do every nanosecond, they're regenerating. It's the natural impulse of human beings to care for their family, their friends, their children, the animals that they have. That's innate to being a human being. And I feel like the climate Conversation of the climate movement became very siloed in this language, and very, to be frank, it othered everything. It was an othering language, Mm -hmm. as if climate was out there somewhere. You know, we're going to fix it. You could find the it. Good luck. There was no it, and it was also sort of redolent with war and sports metaphors. You know, fighting, tackling, combating. Which we can guess which gender those came from. But all that language, even mitigating, you know, was sort of off-putting. I mean, who wakes up in the morning saying, I can't wait to go mitigate? You know, it's just, <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's deadening kind of language. And implication of that language was also a sense of should or guilt or I'm not doing enough. And none of those things are really helpful to creating a true climate movement. And I mean by true, I don't say that the one that exists isn't true. It's very true. People doing amazing things. But I mean true in the sense of its expanse and breadth. And we know that 98 to 99% of humanity is disengaged from doing anything about the greatest crisis humanity has ever faced.
0: Well, right. A lot of people are disengaged, maybe because they're pessimistic, maybe because they're despairing. So I want to ask you about the subtitle ending the climate crisis in one generation. So that can sound like a tall order. And I wonder what exactly you mean by that, and do you think it's possible? Because what's possible is often what drives people.
1: We define ending the climate crisis as, by 2030, 2035, 2040, going in the right direction at the right rate. Mm -hmm. It's not as though at the end of 2030, hey, job done, you know, we're cool. It's not that at all. This is a century-long process. Uh, regeneration is something we should do for the you know rest of the millennia and then some is what we should always be doing. It's not like something that we should do as a response. And that when we are successful, then we can go back to extracting and destroying the world. And whether it's possible or not, here's the thing. If you have reasonable goals, they're reasonable because you know how to do them. That's why they're reasonable. Okay, I can do that. We need unreasonable goals and unreasonable goals are things where you don't know. And when you don't know, that is when imagination, creativity, innovation, and breakthroughs happen. I don't know how to do this. I got to figure this out. How should we do this? Ending the climate crisis in one generation then speaks to us in several levels. One generation is usually considered 20 years, but there's also a generation that has arrived. I won't speak for them. I can't, but I know that in polls that have been done by Clover Hogan and Force of Nature, been done by the American Psychological Association and others worldwide, 70% of people between 15 and 25 are anxious, at least worried, depressed. 40% don't want to have children or are thinking about not having children or afraid to have children. And they arrived to this situation. They didn't create it. They didn't make it. And so they're also looking to our generations and with a question mark, which is what were you thinking? Which is a fair Mm -hmm. question. And so one generation is also about that generation and whatever. I think that they want something that they can organize around that makes sense, you know, Mm -hmm. that gives them a sense of possibility. And one of the things that came out in the IPCC uh, sixth assessment that came out four weeks ago, was a new bit of science. It's a huge bit because we had been told by climate scientists that even if greenhouse gases peak—that that is to say, we stopped emitting them, that we were in store for decades, if not centuries, of more warming, which isn't a real big You know, incentive. (laughs) No matter how hard we do, you know, we're still going to be in a warming planet. But what they released was we know that as soon as greenhouse gases peak, that heating starts to abate and go down within a relatively short time. So that then gives all of us, I mean, not just youth, but I mean, all of us a way of saying, like, we know where we're going. And if we get there, we're going to achieve something that makes sense, you know, for the future of civilization and future of humanity.
0: Right. i just like to say one thing before I ask my next question. You know, when I read that in the book, that if we brought down emissions sufficiently, that warming would peak and begin to decline rather than continue for decades or centuries, which is what I always heard, it really changed my perspective very quickly. Mm-hmm. I thought, wow, this is possible. So that was one of the things that the book really did for me because I realized how attached I was to my own gloom and doom about the climate. Mm. And all of a sudden I thought, oh, there's something we can do. So I really appreciated that. I think that's something that a lot of people don't know, that it will reverse once the emissions drop.
1: I was surprised that it did make more news when that mm-hmm. was announced. I really was, I kind of look for it and say, oh, you know, the Post, the Times, you know, the Guardian or
0: somewhere, it never showed up. It's just not negative enough. (laughs) (laughs) So I I just wanted to ask you in the introduction of the book, write That there's no such thing as a single individual. And that's a notion that may be familiar to a lot of Buddhist listeners to quote you. You say that being an individual is instead an ongoing functional and intimate connection to the human and living world. So how does this view of the individual or lack thereof inform how we can take action? Well, the climate
1: zeitgeist, uh, if you will, was informed initially by science, you know, 40, 50 years ago. I mean, we knew it 100 years ago. I mean, Eunice Newton Foote was the one, the American scientist, who discovered it in 1856 and published a paper on it. So we've known about the mechanism a long time. And as that became clearer, and it was in the public sphere, and then there began the activist phase. So first is the existential threat phase, which is about fear, really. And then there was the activist picked it up and said, "Well, who's the cause?" You know, and it went right to oil, big oil, you know, Exxon, Chevron, and you know things like that, cars. And so when that picked it up, the word was very much about shaming, blame, and guilt. You know, finger pointing and so forth. And then it got to, this is what you can do, sort of Uncle Sam. This playbook came from the tobacco industry, and it was picked up by British Petroleum in 2001. Ogilvy and Mather, the advertising agency, came up with your carbon footprint, you know. And so it said, we just drill for oil and make gas. We're innocent. You drive. We're just serving you, you know. So then it became this era of individuation, I mean, the Union of Concerned Scientists said, if you put a power strip in your home entertainment center, you're doing something about climate, you know? I mean, seriously, this is scientists putting that out and using cold water, (laughs) eat smart. That was a good Mm -hmm. one. I liked that. Eat smart, move closer to work, buy a different car. This is scientists telling us what to do. And that was individuation of the problem and the solution, And as I said in the book, there's no such thing as an individual. Our ego certainly tries to convince us of that every morning when we wake up. But in fact, we are part of complex networks, you know, of people and things beyond people. But just with our family, our friends, you know, uh, who we work with, cities, classes, schools, temples, synagogues, churches. I mean, whatever it is, you know, all those sorts of things, if you make a list of them, look at it you realize you're part of an an amazing network of human beings. And that's because we're homo sapiens. That's why we're here, not Neanderthals. We'd love to work together, play together, learn together, do together. And that is who we are, you know, and that's where you have influence. And that is where change, the vector of change really comes from, you know. We all hope that big government and big corps and... I shouldn't say corporations, (laughs) Uh, and, you know, get it and do something. We've waited 25 years for the conference of the party, uh, that there's a breakthrough. The Paris Agreement was considered to be a big breakthrough because it had 191 signatories. Not uh, one country's pledge actually meets the Paris Agreement. There is no incentives, no penalties. And during that time... $3.8 trillion was loaned to fossil fuel companies and $3.3 trillion was subsidized, given government subsidies to fossil fuel companies, $7.1 trillion, and so much for the Paris Agreement. I think everyone who's there doing it, active with it is amazing, extraordinary. But I'm just saying, we got to stop looking for that to change. And it should, and we want it to, and we hope it does. And it's very powerful when government changes rules and regulations and policies and subsidies and taxes and incentives. But if we're waiting around for that to happen, then we're going to be disappointed and we're going to fail. We're not going to be good ancestors to the future.
2: So your approach brings together scientific research, like you just described, and, and much deeper, almost spiritual tools of transformation, like compassion courage and reverence. Now, reverence is not a word one hears very often these days, which is an interesting reflection. At one point, you say that the most complex radical climate technologies on Earth are the human heart, head, and mind, not a solar panel. And can you speak a little bit about this? Am
1: I betraying my... (laughs) Your roots? (laughs) I guess you did. (laughs) Well, they're not my roots. There are roots. They're the yes. roots of humanity. And is, you know, Buddhism is seen as a religion, but it's really the science of the heart and mind, you mm-hmm. know. And it is a science that's just beautifully articulated and expressed. Like my teacher, I mean, all Buddhist teachers are my teacher, but my direct teacher is Jack Cornfield, uh, mm-hmm. who's on my, on my board, who mm-hmm. you know very well. So here's the secret. Okay. So when I was doing the book, I was stressing. There's no question about it, about the deadline, about it being good enough, you know, my perfectionist OCD self, about facts, the science, getting that right. And so when I'd wake up in the middle of the night, which I would do, I would turn on Jack's podcasts. I can finish his sentences now. I've heard <laughs> every one of them. I, know. I love his jokes. I, know I have my favorite jokes of his. But then I go back to sleep and going back to sleep with those teachings and the wonderful way he teaches it as well, you know, was definitely a leitmotif that went through the whole book. No question Mm -hmm. about it. Yeah.
2: I'm writing a book myself right now, so I'm listening very carefully. (laughs) I'm like, whoa, (laughs) (laughs) stress. Oh no, it doesn't help. Yeah. There are a couple of things I wanted to, to just ask. One is I've talked to Jack a lot about the sort of your project in general, and it reminds me of, You know, sometimes uh, structurally, I've looked at something like AA, you know, or 12-step groups and think, what a brilliant model. Couldn't this be something that could be replicated Uh with various kinds of suffering? You know, bringing people together a sense of fellowship. So Jack very much was talking about what you did as maybe a model for other, you know, very uh, pressing kind of issues like technology and you know the mind and things like that. So I think you really um, have accomplished more than just the book You know, in many ways. I think it's going to be very influential. And maybe you would speak a little bit about the gathering that
1: you did in, in creating this. Thank you. First of all, just there was a gathering on many, many levels. Of course, there's staff, there's board, but then there is the other organizations and people we work with in the world. And in every case, you know, what we're looking to is to break out of the climate silo, if you will, is and even on the website. But the book itself, though, I mean, really, we talk about the, I call it the sick care industry, but the healthcare industry, we talk about the war industry, we talk about the poverty industry, and poverty itself, you know, and about uh, the politics industry, and the banking industry, we talk about it. The climate movement has given all these things a kind of a hall pass, you know, a get-out-of-jail-free thing. So the idea that somehow if we have this sort of straitjacket of thinking that if we all convert to renewable energy, everything's going to be okay, it just simply is not true at all. And that exclusion of 98, 99% of the people in the world, greatest number is people who we classify as poor, and they are, they live in poverty, and that's 4.3 billion people who live under eight or nine, $10 a day they're excluded because we have had a climate movement that's very much about talking about future existential threat. Interesting phrase. It's true. The brain doesn't care about that. I mean, some people do, but the human brain isn't wired that way. It cares about current existential threat. And those 4.3 billion people wake up every morning with that Every single day, you know, mm-hmm. which is food for security, their children, their safety, education, affording the books or uniforms they need, their health, their well being, their jobs. I've got, you just go right on down the list, you know. And that's what 4.3 billion people at least wake up with every single morning. So the climate movement has really doesn't have anything to say to them. And so the solutions that you'll see in regeneration and, and actually in in the website Nexus they benefit everyone, the cascading benefits, and they meet current human needs. And if the climate movement isn't going to address poverty, children, women, the plight of people who are paying the highest price, indigenous people, for not just what the warming is doing, but just what this existing extractive economy is doing to them, then we're not serious.
2: Your book offers so many examples of interconnection, networks of trees taking care of each other, the interdependence of ecosystems just to name a few now that brings me back to the sense of reverence which is what i actually see coming up within me when i read that and i'm wondering about learning from those models of interconnectivity and interdependence not only in terms of action which you spoke about you know so beautifully right now but in terms of compassion in terms of reverence in terms of those inner states that we also want to cultivate for what might be, you know, necessary to sustain this this
1: effort. Well, I think it goes back again, what I was saying earlier about the languaging of climate and we've languaged it as an it and other, you know, a thing out there somewhere. And then we've dissociated ourselves from it in that way. And I think a lot of people have come to understand climate through that lens, through that way of seeing things. And what regeneration is trying to do is not try to teach, but to show the obvious, which is the biosphere and the atmosphere are inseparable in the same thing, you know, that there is no thing out there where it's happening, you know. And to point out that global warming is caused by a profound disconnection. And the disconnection is between each other, humans to humans for sure. And we see that visibly and rather horribly right now in the world between humans and nature itself and between nature, the fragmentation, the poisoning, you know, of acidification of oceans. I mean, we're fragmenting nature itself. And so, I mean, regeneration is really very much about repairing, putting those broken strands together with the knowledge that we know scientifically that the way you heal a system is to connect more of it to itself, whether it's an ecosystem, an immune system, or a social system, you know, and there was all the pieces and parts of there. What you got to do is reconnect them. And so, one of the things that's really important to reconnect is ourselves with life itself, you know, and our, our food, our advertising, our, you know, I mean, our work, where we work, how we work, what we work on. I mean, so much of us gives us the illusion that somehow nature is a nice place to go to on vacation. But rather than seeing soil as a community and the source of all nutrition and well being. And then to understand that we're killing the soil, it's called industrial agriculture. And it seemed to be a good idea at the time, you know, and now we know better. And so to try to reconnect people, so reverence comes from the experience of, I mean, there's a really beautiful book on trees. The Italians have done a lot of the original research on plant perception and plant intelligence. And the literature describes how trees and plants Have all five senses that we have, and they have 15 more. I'm looking out the window right now, but I'm looking at redwood trees that are on on the property, and there must be 25 of them. And I remember reading that and going, just, oh my gosh, you know, and then walking there and then realizing that all the trees could see me. Like, all they can (laughs) see is a kind of a chiaroscuro movement, black and white, as far as we know, by the way. They don't have a brain. They don't have an optic nerve. They're, they're completely different organisms, obviously, than we are. And now every time I do it, I go, whoa, this is community. We know that trees live in community, of course, you know, and that there's mother trees. And when Susan Samard first came up with that, you know, understanding, she called mother trees and talked about altruism and she was pounced on by her fellow male scientists, pounced on, you know, she was right. They were wrong. And they saw that for us as competition rather than community, and so I feel like reverence is the awakening to being alive, you know, like I'm alive, oh my gosh, this is amazing. <laughs> I'm not going to be here long. And so <laughs> while I'm here, you know, uh, like my brothers and sisters aren't just human beings, you know, they're everything that is in the living world. You can't have that experience looking at a screen, you know. You can be prompted to have an experience, and you can be moved, very much so by, you know, documentaries, and videos, and so forth. But the actual experience of connectedness comes
0: from uh, being outside. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. For the past 30 years, Tricycle the Buddhist Review has been the leading source of Buddhist news, culture, and conversation in the West. Now you can enjoy even more of your favorite Tricycle offerings with our new subscription tier, Tricycle Premium. For just $99 annually, Tricycle Premium includes the perks of a standard print and digital subscription, plus access to monthly virtual events, 35% off our online courses, a special premium-only newsletter delivered to your inbox, and a free digital gift subscription. Upgrade now at tricycle.org slash subscribe. Now, let's get back to my conversation with Sharon Salzberg and Paul Hawken. You know, Paul, you said something almost in passing, but I, it really jumped out at me in the book. You know, we think of life as this endless Darwinian competition, yet you're saying, as the trees show us, it's really also, if not primarily, cooperation. Yes, absolutely. And think about it, go ahead, industrial
1: ag, like this step back. Okay. What happened, people invented artificial fertilizers, you know, and there was chemicals that could be applied and that were affordable. And nitrate in the Haber-Bosch method in the early 20th century, which actually was used for bombs, but can also be used for fertilizer. And so you put that stuff on the soil and you get greener, bigger plants sooner and you go, oh my God, fantastic, you know. What's wrong with this picture? Nothing, it's been, you know. But what happened is that it produced, you know, very weak plants, actually. And so pretty soon the insects figured that one out. And then they're all over it. Then you need insecticides. And then the plants were very shallow rooted because kind of like plants on an IV drip system, you know, everything they needed was pretty much on the first few inches of the soil. And then the weeds came in, you know, like, and competing, oh, you know, well, now we need glyphosate, we need herbicides, you know, our plants can't grow to full production. And What's really interesting is that if you look at a field of degraded land, it can be a farmland, which is most farmland is degraded land now, study the weeds that are growing there. The weeds are trying to heal the soil. If a weed is deficient in certain minerals, you'll get Canadian thistle, which is a deep taproot, to bring up those minerals. I mean, you're getting amaranth and pigweed. Each of them is an indicator of the earth trying to heal itself. And if you see it that way, then you're starting to see this, where we live is that life creates the conditions for life. I mean, that's what it does. And it does so in such ingenious ways. And people, people who've been here for thousands of years, we call them indigenous, they're indigenous because they are largely the original inhabitant of the land. And that's what indigene means but you have like the Micmac First Nation in Nova Scotia and Canada and so forth. They can go by a spruce tree and they can listen to it, the wind softing, you know, through the tree. And then they'll name the tree. They'll name it. And the name is the sound they're hearing. Then they can go by that tree 10 years later. They remember the name. They listen to the sound to see if the sound matches the name. And if it doesn't, then they know something has happened to the tree, air pollution or something, lightning strike or whatever. So this extraordinary sensitivity exists on both sides. I don't wanna separate humans from nature, but I'm just saying we had that as people on this planet in understanding the living world in a way that is about observational science. It's the science of place. And the difference between indigenous observational science and the science we've come to rely upon is about repetition. You do an experiment, empirical. If you can't repeat it, it's not good science. And in nature, of course, nothing repeats itself. You have like the Yupik people, you know, on the Bering strait who could predict weather accurately two years in advance. And we can't predict it six days in advance with all our satellites. And so... In terms of reverence, I think we have this amazing amount of knowledge that's still here, 5,000 cultures, you know. It's 5% of the, of the world's population, but it is 80% of the world's biodiversity is where that 5% is. And I don't think that's a coincidence. That is due to language, but the language is just passed on in songs and stories and obviously words themselves, and these contained the science of place. They taught the children, the new people, how to live in that place. And they grew. The song lines of Australian Aboriginal. yeah, those songs, the songs change and they contain what to know about that place in Australia and how to care for it. So when I think of reverence, Sharon, I think of like, it's just all there. Rather than if we stay inside and, you know, whatever, we're missing this Extraordinary beauty that's here on earth, in people, in place, in creatures, in plants, in the ecosystems, and so forth. And it's enough to make you weep for its beauty.
2: Well, it's so inspiring listening to you. You know, because I've also been thinking. Of course, you know, in any kind of activist work, it's so easy to become overwhelmed, to feel uh, it's fruitless, or you're just burning out. It's too much. And and certainly the way the climate crisis is often presented in the news can feel so apocalyptic. And, you know, I want to talk to you about what helps you stay motivated, what helps others stay motivated as far as your experience and drawing from this quality of reverence. It's right there, as well as compassion and, and those qualities.
1: Well, I usually refer to the Wendell Berry quote, you know, be joyous though you've considered all the facts. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's <great. laughs> of course, he's right. But I mean, I think all of us have to say, you know, again, got the facts. Thank you for this brilliant, brilliant, the IPCC, the science is brilliant What the women and men have done there over the years. But how do you want to live your life? And you can live it as a victim, like this is happening to me. That's, you know, that's unfair. I didn't do it, or I don't do so much, or you know, whatever. <laughs> or you can live it as the subject, you know. I don't mean that in a narcissistic way, but I really mean, as it's happening for me, this is a gift, this is an offering. The way I look at it is, we're being homeschooled. It's like, fantastic, my father was the one who made me drop out of the university. He said, your education begins when you leave school. I took him at his word and left. But all our education never stops, and that's the point. And we're being educated in lesson number one. The lesson plan number one is get in alignment with biology. If you're not, then you know you're gonna have a tough time here. And the thing is that nature never makes a mistake. It's hard for humans to understand that, but they finger point and blame and see everything that's wrong with the world. Nature never makes a mistake; only we do. When we talk about climate, again, we talk about climate change as if it was a bad thing. It is a fantastic thing. Climate is perfect. It's responding to what's happening in the biosphere down here. By villainizing it or, you know, making it somehow a terror, a source of terror, you know, isn't true. And if the climate didn't change every second, we wouldn't have, you know, hummingbirds and glaciers and rivers and jungles and food and fruit trees and mangoes and parrots and that kind We wouldn't have it. We haven't because the climate keeps changing. And so, again, reverence, thank you. We live on this amazing Goldilocks planet. I mean, we're not Mars, we're not Venus. Venus has a lot of CO2, Mars has none. We're just so fortunate to be here and so forth. And basically, we unintentionally meddled with climate stability. And okay, let's go, let's fix it. Fix it means us, not it out there. Let's fix what we're doing down here. That's what Regeneration is about very much, so forth is like the solutions that, and the challenges. And then Nexus, it's in the website, regeneration.org, is really, I say, that complete listing of solutions and how to get them done. People ask me too, sometimes, you know, what should I do? I say, I have no idea what you should do. Come on. I said, but you do. And the thing to do is to look at this amazing, complex variety of ways in which you can be effective and engage you know and make change find the one that lights you up that you go I want to do that I've always wanted to do that or I used to do that or I'm curious about I want to learn more about it or I care about this creature this animal this migratory corridor or I mean you decide you know and that is what you should do you know,
2: so often in, in Buddhism, as you know very well, we talk about compassion and caring, being born from being able to open to suffering, be able to acknowledge it, not disguise it, not hide from it, not run away from it. But to actually be able to do something, you know, we need a different energy. It's not only the feeling of dismay, you know, like this isn't right. It's an actually energized posture of like going toward that situation, that person, whatever, to see if we can be of help, if we can
1: make a difference in some way. Absolutely. Right action, right livelihood, right. I mean, it's all there in Buddhism. What I try to do when I write is make it as accessible as possible to Mm -hmm. a wider Mm -hmm. variety of people as possible. I'm always looking for, when I'm editing, you know, always going back and always going back and so forth. I knew <laughs> what my touchstone was, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. I knew what I relied upon, you know, I, uh, where are you standing? Well, that's this is where I'm standing, and I can't imagine what it would have been like for me, certainly, but what the book would have become without it. I just can't imagine, you know, without that, again, it's not a framework, you know, and these words sort of mm-hmm. beggar the complexity and beauty of the practice, but there's no question about it.
0: You yeah, know, I'm going to try to formulate a question that I didn't write down, so I'll go out on a limb here, but you were talking earlier about the people who live on $10 a day, say, it's not possible for them to think beyond that if they're going to survive. So we need, in your book, as you say, to come up with climate solutions that also address that fact. Otherwise, it makes no sense to half the population or more, and we need everybody. But then I was thinking those of us who are not living on $10 a day, you think? I think we should be able to think long-term we have that luxury but maybe our minds aren't wired that way but then i think and i was having this conversation this morning of the people who built cathedrals they started something uh, the completion of which they knew they would never see so i thought what kind of mind would undertake something that would be completed long after their death and you and sharon have been talking about reverence and that's kind of an answer for me reverence would allow me to do this regardless of whether i'm there for the result or not i wonder if you've given that sort of thing some thought, because there is something in us that can think long-term, but what kind of mind is that? What kind of belief system is that? What kind of commitment is that? Well,
1: going back to the poverty, we don't have to come up with climate solutions that address poverty, they just do, Mm -hmm. just the way they are. And the qualities and of the work that regeneration offers the world Gives all people a sense of purpose and meaning and dignity. And too often, especially people who are impoverished, lack all three. I mean, they have the meaning of their family and what they're trying to achieve, of course, you know, but I'm just saying the work that is offered to them or where they can make a living is meaningless in many ways. And that's true for Americans too, in you know, fast food, McDonald's, et cetera. So the number one cause of depression is having a life of no purpose. Just feeling purposeless yourself and having no mm-hmm. purpose. And it leads to all sorts of strange activity. So when we think about like 2 billion hectares of degraded land, I mean, what can you put more water in, an empty glass or one that's half full? And so those lands are carbon poor and afforestation, all the different ways we can treat that land in such a way that brings it back to life are jobs, the work. And it's really great work because you get to see the difference every spring. You can see it growing and changing and birds coming back and water coming back and rivers coming back and streams. And you're bringing life back. And regeneration is really about bringing the earth back to life. And when you bring the earth back to life, you bring yourself back to life. You can't do one without the other. I mean, to me, regeneration is about, as you say, the seventh generation of the long, it's like starting with the end in mind. What is the end in mind? And the end, what I mean by end isn't the finish, the the ending, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's like the Monte Nenquino who's in the book, or Hindu, Amaru Ibrahim, who is this amazing indigenous Chadian woman. It's so beautiful. She talks about, she's a pastoralist. I mean, her, her culture goes back, you know, I don't know how many thousands of years. And she said, we thought seven generations, that we always think seven generations ahead. And here's the surprise, because we know what happened seven generations ago you know so you remember oh yeah we know exactly what right. each generation did and so you see yourself as a whole a part of, of a whole a continuity an expression of human ingenuity of kindness of culture of song and learning and you know we've cut that up into little ribbons and pieces in our culture but it's there your question is really pointing to something that's really important. Because I think when you have that way of being and feeling and seeing in, in the world, then your sense of connection and responsiveness, responsibility, the ability to respond, changes dramatically.
2: One of the things you say in the book is uh, regeneration is not only about bringing the world back to life, it's about bringing each of us back to life. so I think this is really what you're talking about. And I love in that section, when you're offering 12 principles that are phrased as questions, any of us might consider when undertaking any action, does the action create livelihoods or eliminate them? Does it provide workers with dignity or demean them? And and just having those kind of questions, you know, it's not about pass fail. it's, It's about bringing consciousness to what we're doing so that it becomes an alive action rather than just something we do by rote.
1: Yeah, I think one of them, are you meeting human needs or creating human wants? Again, are you pandering to desire or are you offering somebody to, frankly, alleviate suffering, you know? I didn't do Shantideva, you know? I, I just made it as simple and as accessible as possible for the reader. And the thing about regeneration, it's not like you can do it overnight or something, that question is putting life at the center of every act and decision. Mm-hmm. And we have an economy that you pull the string on the flower bag on every single service and product and you go down, you know, and you'll find in the supply chain that life is being taken. And life is being destroyed. Life is mm-hmm. being harmed without exception. And so we know that we're all part of a degenerative economy because that's what taking life is, degeneration. So... It's really about knowing and seeing. I think this is what we all see, and this is what's causing a sense of ennui and depression, and, you know, is that I can see the end of that road. That road doesn't go much further. And you're telling me to go down this road? It's a dead end down there. And so regeneration is a 180. So I think I want to go this way. It doesn't mean we know or the book knows or our staff knows or, you know, all of us know. We know the questions, That's the most important thing. And to ask those questions and to move step by step, you know, towards regeneration. We do things every day that cause harm. You know, we don't mean to. It's not intentional. It's not our purpose, but we do. And then we just can look and watch and observe, understand, you know, take in, ponder, consider, which is, by the way, one of the best English words of all it means consider. You know, I always took four years of Latin, which I detested. But I remember that one, which means to get you know with the stars. You know, to to look at something. That was the whole in mind to consider. You know, but we can do that, and that is the path. Beautiful. James said
2: sadly to me on the phone the other day, "I guess you never took Latin." <laughs> which I had
0: not. It's true. <laughs> Of course I did. (laughs) You (laughs) do. You know, Paul, I guess we can close with one question. You quote Gary Snyder, who says that the only way to restore the planet is by loving it, not causing harm. So how does love factor into your work in this way? It factors into
1: my work in several ways. One is that if you look at the imagery, I mean, I was born and raised a photographer, and so I have a huge appreciation when I was a child at our home, and there was Ansel Adams and Ed Weston and Brett Weston and Captain Negro, minor white, and Eugene Cunningham. So I grew up with people who looked at the world in a really profound way. It was all black and white pretty much then, but it doesn't make any difference. And so I chose all the imagery in the book. And the purpose was to have someone look at it and go, wow, oh, look at that's beautiful. What's happening? Or... Why is this oxpecker on the head of a rhino in the water? (laughs) And what is it? And why is it there? And, you know, but just the beauty of the eyes and the bird, you know, all the different images there are. And I've heard a discussion about this recently is like, you know, what is love? Because love seems so temporal, you know, comes and goes in some ways, at least in the popular literature. But to me, at at the core of love is beauty all cultures, all people see beauty. And beauty just does something to us. And I think when Gary said that, I think very much it was, you know, I mean, you all know where he lived and where he spent his days and uh, does. And I went to school up there, by the way. I went to school in Nevada City, so it wasn't far from where. And spent most of it outside on horses and things like that and rivers. And it is about falling in love. You know, we have one of our social media posts. Are you madly in love with nature? <laughs> <laughs> www.regeneration.org. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're even going to have it on those beeline advertises. You know, these are these bicycle delivery vehicles in Portland, Oregon. And a friend of mine has designed these pretty big carts, actually, powered by a bicycle. And it says, you know, you know, are you madly in love with nature? And it shows a picture of the book and things like that. But thank you both. Thank you for this. It's kind of lovely to talk about it in this context. Our, I guess, shared understanding. And it's so relaxing and instead of, sort of being questioned. <laughs> 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 it's been a really great conversation to be with you.
2: Well, it's beautiful being with you, truly. And James, you're going to stop doom scrolling, right?
0: Yeah, I'll stop doom-scrolling now that I know that once we peak and bring down emissions, it's not going to go on for centuries. So thank you for that, Paul. And thank you so much for joining Sharon and me. And for our listeners, I can't recommend a book more highly than I can, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. We'll also have an excerpt in the November issue of Tricycle, but it's no substitute for the book. So now I'm going to hand it over to Sharon. As with all these podcasts, we have a nice way of closing with a short meditation.
2: Well, thank you so much. Why don't we sit together uh, just for a few minutes and close your eyes or not, however you feel most at ease. And start with just feeling your body and feeling the earth supporting you. Feel space touching you. You know, usually we think it's something we have to do, like poke a finger in the the air, but space is always touching us. It's already touching us. Feel your breath, which is truly a miracle of life. one of the many, many ways we are connected to a larger whole. We breathe in, we breathe out. From that sense of having a home being centered, being present, We can allow all things to come and go, thoughts, feelings, arising and passing away. And we're home.
0: Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, Paul Hawken. Thank you, Sharon, for being such a great partner in these podcasts. Thank you. You've been listening to Life As It Is with Paul Hawken. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast, so write us at feedback at tricycle.org to let us know what you think. Life As It Is and Tricycle Talks are produced by As It Should Be and Sarah Fleming. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review.